0: Lapsus busts, deadbolt ransomware, a Google Zero Day, and a bug so old it could have a driver's license by now. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth. He is Paul Ducklin. Paul, I know you used to live in Australia, so I have a Paul-centric fun fact for you today. I did not know this, but I was surprised to learn that at 4,000 kilometers, or about 2,500 miles across, Australia is wider than the moon itself, which measures just 3,400 kilometers or just over 2,100 miles. So you have a better chance of circumnavigating the moon than you do of uh, getting across Australia, perhaps because it's also very hot. Although, as we pointed out in the production meeting, you, you would die instantly on the moon without the proper protective clothing and equipment.
1: The other thing is that there is a fairly well-established regular train service mm. that leaves Sydney and trundles its way across the Nullarbor Plain all the way to Perth.
0: That too. As we move along to our first story, uh, let's talk about this is, this deadbolt ransomware is, is interesting in that it's a ransomware with a little twist.
1: Yes, and an important twist with two different sorts of lesson in it. The first is that although the, the past, when it comes to cybercrime, is a good guide to what's likely to happen in the future, sometimes things happen in ways that aren't at all what you're currently expecting. As you know, Doug, most people these days, when they think of ransomware, they don't think of it like it was in 2013, in the CryptoLocker days, when it was one computer at a time and each person had to cough up the 300 or the 600 or the $1,000. These days, the expectation is the crooks get in, they poke around, they learn your whole network, and then they scramble everything at once, and that's why it's particularly disastrous. But the deadbolt ransomware doesn't work that way. It just goes after inadvertently exposed network-attached storage devices, in particular the ones that home users and small businesses are more likely to use, perhaps, than big businesses. If you're not careful, however, and inadvertently you've left it online, and there's a bug in the firmware in that device, then crooks like this deadbolt crew will come in and they'll leave all of the rest of your network alone. They'll go just after your backup and they'll scramble that device in one go. And then instead of sending you messages via your wallpaper on every computer on the network, next time you go to the NAS box, next time you go to the web portal, you get a special web page saying, send us the money.
0: And if that wasn't enough, you get to learn how to use <laughs> blockchain messaging based on uh, the crypto you need to send them to unlock it. You can't. There's no email address. In other words,
1: that's another interesting angle to this. You send them the bitcoins to a particular bitcoin address, and they send you a transaction back worth zero dollars, but with a message in it, hidden in it, and that message is the thirty-two characters you need that you put into the decryption key, and off you go.
0: And there's also an interesting master key uh, that they would like to sell for a cup, a cool $2 million.
1: Very much reminiscent of the Kaseya attackers, isn't it? Where they realize, oh, golly, we've, we've, we've gone a bit far with this. So instead of trying to blackmail everyone, we'll just go, hey, hey, world, $70 million buys you the all-you-can-eat buffet slash Everlasting gobstopper ticket. And these crooks have done something similar on a slightly different scale. And this time they're not expecting you to pool your resources with everyone. Said, hey, here's a message for QNAP. That's the name of the company that makes this particular device that's been targeted through a vulnerability. Uh here's a message for QNAP. Send us 50 Bitcoin, as you say, two million dollars, and we'll provide a master key. That didn't work out. What happened is the vendor actually produced a an update as a kind of hot fix and they told people please apply this it's important and then they realized you know what actually we're going to make this a non-optional update so the next time your device calls home to look for updates even if you have automatic updates turned off we're just going to fetch this particular update because otherwise you're in a clear and present danger
0: okay and we'll talk a little bit about that later in the show but some of the advice here you say, don't open your network servers up to the internet unless you really mean to.
1: Yes, for this to work, you had to have your network attached storage open to the internet. And for most people, that is not what they wanted and probably not what they intended. So there are two things to look out for when it comes to devices that have, say, your own precious on. One is, have you inadvertently turned on remote access to devices without even realizing the device had that feature, even though you never intended it. And the second is, are you using any devices or do you have a router that supports UPnP, universal plug and play? If you do, or even if you don't think you have any such devices, go into your router, find out whether it has a universal plug and play feature and turn it off. It's meant to help you, by making your devices easier to find, like when you come home with some fantastic new webcam or printer and you plug it in and your laptop finds the printer easily thanks to UPnP. The problem is that routers may inadvertently expose internal devices to the outside using the same sort of, hey, here I am, come and find me magic. By the way, if you have a router that supports the universal plug and play and will not let you turn it off, my own personal advice is that I think you should go and buy another router.
0: <laughs> and that's uh, the good news of that is that you uh, get to go gadget shopping, which is always fun. So you got to get a new router, but you can, you can go gadget shopping. And you say uh, the final piece of advice here, the old three-two-one rule, don't rely entirely on online backups.
1: Yes, that three-two-one one rule for backup, if you want to aware of it, very, very simple. You can use it at work, small biz, or at home. The idea is try and have three copies of everything. So one is the copy you're working on, the live copy, and have two other copies rather than one. Try and have two different types of backup so that if there is a problem, technological problem, for example, with one of them, it doesn't affect both of them at the same time. Or if something goes wrong with the soft backup software you're using for backup type A, it doesn't affect your B backup as well. And the one is... Try and have at least one of those backups that is not only offline, but ideally, if you can, also off-site. And by offline, it means that it's disconnected from your network, or from your laptop or from any computer you own, except when you know you want to use it, like when you're making the backup or doing a restore under controlled circumstances. Most of the time, it's locked away in a safe or a cupboard or encrypted and given to a neighbor to look after, just in case. Because if it's not plugged in, the crooks can't reach it on the internet, no matter how liberal your router settings may be.
0: All right. That is serious security deadbolt, the ransomware that goes straight for your backups. You can read that on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And let us talk about this lapsus gang.
1: Well, we've talked about them twice, haven't we, on the podcast. They're notoriously supposed to have hacked Okta the two-factor authentication company, Microsoft, where they were so arrogant, it seems, about bragging that they'd done the hack on Microsoft, stealing source code, that they actually bragged about it while they were still leeching the data. And Microsoft, whoa! The crooks drew attention to themselves in the middle of the crime, and, and the crime was shut down. Well, yeah, and it would be
0: like doing a Facebook Live while you're robbing a bank.
1: <laughs> Look, at it. Look, at yeah. it. Look at it, watch this, everybody. Here we are, with geolocation turned on. We made on. it, yeah. <laughs> they also infamously hacked NVIDIA, and instead of demanding an all-you-can-eat buffet monetary fee for deleting all the zillions of bytes they'd stolen from NVIDIA, they said, open-source your drivers on Linux, and/or." allow us to use your restricted graphics card for crypto mining and we'll let you off. It was crazy stuff for a bit there. Well, it turns out that police in the UK are said to have arrested seven people recently, within the last week, with ages ranging from 16 to 21 inclusive. And although the police haven't said, there is at least some implication That at least one or more of these people are involved with the whole lapsus dollar cyber extortion thing. And it seems that the way they worked, according to Microsoft's analysis of this group, they call them, they have the more pedestrian name, dev 0537 uh, as their name for lapsus dollar. It seems that a lot of their intrusions aren't hacking in the old school, oh, I'm going to write lots of machine code and exploit vulnerabilities and sneak in. They're much blunter and in many ways harder to deal with because it involves calling people up and sweet-talking them. So you might call it that Kevin Mitnick style. Or actually offering to pay insiders inside your business to let them in, in a sort of deniable way. That's the way Microsoft has painted their picture. So that's where we are with the story. What we don't know is whether these seven people are arrested because they haven't been charged yet. They've been arrested and released with the police saying, "We're just letting you know that we are <laughs> I'm going to put this looking into you." And I'm not aware of any further movements in that in the last few days. So whether the police have identified some of this lapsus dollar gang or not, uh, we don't know. So watch this space. It's Likely to get interesting, particularly given the youth of some of the people who were just arrested.
0: All right, we will keep an eye on that developing story. That is, uh, UK police arrest seven hacking suspects. Have they bust the Lapsus gang on naked nakedsecurity.sovost.com?
1: Just to be clear, Doug, I have had some people who speak American English say, uh, Don't yeah. you mean busted, but I'm sticking with bust, I think in British or Commonwealth English. Given that it's an informal word, anyway, you can talk about, you know, oh, I had a steep hill to ride up. I really bust a gut, and uh, you know, they they bust the door down and burst into the room. So I think we're allowed to leave off the ed.
0: All right, I will we're to be
1: a little a little more casual.
0: Speaking of getting to things, uh, this is the story of a 17-year-old bug that nice. was finally patched. So this is. <laughs> Uh, I, I, you know, this is older than a lot of people. This bug is older than a lot of people's kids.
1: Yes. As you said earlier, just Could be driving old enough for a driving license in the UK. Yeah. It's 17 for a car in, in many other European countries, it's 18. So it would certainly have a learner's permit by now. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in most countries that I'm aware of. Uh, yes. And it's a library called Zedlib. And it's a very, very widely used data compression and decompression library, particularly widely used on Unix and Linux systems because it was introduced many, many years ago, I think in the, in the, in the 1990s, as an alternative to a very popular compression utility on Unix called Compress. And it uses a very similar algorithm it works in a very similar way but as far as the authors can tell not only does it compress rather better than the original compressed program it was unencumbered by patents because people were worried that there were there might be some patents on the algorithm used in the compressed program so you might have compressed data and then suddenly you wouldn't be allowed to decompress it so they figured let's let's find something that is free open source not encumbered by patents, but it compresses better anyway. And this, the algorithm they use uh, is one called deflate, which was originally invented for use in PKZIP, uh, which many of our older listeners will remember from the DOS days. PK being Phil Katz, the uh, the programmer who invented the file format and started the company PKWare. The algorithm is called deflate because it deflates data. The reason it's still so widely used, even though there are better compression algorithms available, now we have more CPU power, more memory, etc., etc., it's basically embedded in an internet RFC, RFC 1951, Deflate Compressed Data Format Specification Version 1.3, and it's kind of used all over the place. So, we have this venerable, long-running compression code used all over the place in all sorts of applications to this day. And it hasn't had a bug fixed since 2017, because you kind of think, like with compression, if it's so widely used, it must have faced all the opponents. Surely the right.
0: kinks have been ironed out by now.
1: Well, yes and no, Doug. <laughs> the <laughs> The uh, well-known Google bug hunter Tavis Ormandy was recently looking into a crash that he was investigating, which seemed to be inside zlib's code. I thought, well, that's a bit weird. And then even weirder, normally when you get bugs in compression code, you usually expect the bug to be in the decompression part because you know, you've, you're getting out more data than you started with. What if you haven't allocated enough? Tavis found that the bug was, in fact, in the compressor. And then he thought, wow, that's weird. That's interesting enough. Went to report it and realized <laughs> that the bug he'd found and constructed a if you like a proof of concept for at great length to show that it was indeed a problem, he realized, oh wow, it had been reported in twenty eighteen. And in twenty eighteen it had been noted this bug has been lying around unknown in the code, waiting to be discovered for thirteen years.
0: But you just said, Paul, that it hasn't a bug hasn't been fixed since twenty seventeen. What's going on here?
1: The last official release of Zedlib was 1.2.11, which did indeed come out in 2017. So although this amazing 13-year-old bug was discovered in 2018 and patched, the patch kind of never got consumed, if you like. (laughs) It never made it into a release until the bug was independently rediscovered and (laughs) redocumented by Tavis Ormandy, And now suddenly, oh, golly, did we forget? Kind of an important
0: step they missed there, yeah.
1: It was just fixed in theory. It was fixed in GitHub. It wasn't fixed in my Linux distro (laughs) or yours or anybody else's.
0: Okay, so...
1: Lot of lessons to learn there, Doug. (laughs) Close,
0: Close, but no cigar. Yes. Other advice we can give is to update... You probably haven't done that in quite some time. We have advice for programmers.
1: And by the way, when you see the update, if you're a Linux user, like I saw it this morning, Zlib 1.2.12, and it said patch to memory mismanagement, CV 2018-25032. So although it's actually being patched in practice now, it has a CV that says CV-2018. So if you see that in your Linux distro, that is not a mistake. It's more of an ominous reminder <laughs> not to let this happen to you. It really is a 2018 year CV. That's when the bug was discovered. Patched 2022. <laughs> almost almost exactly four years later. <laughs> Better late so, than never, I guess. Yes.
0: Okay, so patch, and then if you're a programmer, you should never assume that the last bug may have been found by now.
1: That's a slightly tongue-in-cheek tip for us to give in the Naked Security article, but I I do really mean it. it. It is tempting to assume that a program that has been so widely used on such a wild and unknown super extra variable range of inputs and outputs over all these years, there could still be something in there that hasn't been found, notably If it's in a part of the code that very rarely either needs or does get used. So the flip side of that is if you've got code that contains some super special feature that is kind of feels desirable, that could be really useful, but you don't actually need and hardly ever gets used, consider just getting rid of it.
0: And then, of course, if you're a product manager, uh it's kind of table stakes for your your job, but make sure
1: <laughs> <laughs> don't it's you saying it not me yeah, well
0: i I can say that I used to be a product manager so if, if you yeah. if uh patches produce, you should make sure it makes it into the uh the code
1: now I suspect that in the modern era, you know with data breach regulations being what they are and the kind of scrutiny that companies expect themselves to be under for things like bug reports, bug responses, and so forth. I think it's less likely that something like this would happen today than it would have 5, 10, 15 years ago. But when in doubt, go and check. Because saying something got fixed doesn't actually mean that it did.
0: So true. All right. That is Zlib data compressor fixes 17-year-old security bug patch Err, now on naked security dot sophos.com. and speaking of things that are very old it's time for our this week in tech history segment and this week i remember it fondly on march 31st 1995 the critically panned but perhaps poorly understood microsoft bob was released meant to make home computing more user-friendly bob's interface was that of a house filled with clickable apps disguised as everyday items a clock on a shelf a calendar on the wall a rolodex on a table and the like, and thanks to towering system requirements, a high price tag, poor messaging on the marketing side, and too good for Bob tech influencers taking the mere existence of Bob personally, Bob barely managed to limp its way into 1996 before being killed off. I liked Bob, but then again, I was a kid in 1995.
1: I got it for free. Doug, are 12-step programs that can help you with <laughs>
0: that. Wait, hear it's me easy. out. Hear me out. I got it for free. I was working at Best Buy. and after Oh, you... <laughs> that
1: makes it much more valuable then.
0: <laughs> and after using it for about 15 minutes, I realized that I could do just about everything much faster in Windows itself, which I already understood. So it was a tough sell. You needed to have a really fast computer. You needed to shell out 100 bucks for it. You needed to take the time to learn it. And uh, there was a very, I think Microsoft found there was a very small market and a small actual market for this.
1: Am I misremembering Douglas, or was there a kind of rather happy, tail-waggy little dog?
0: There was a dog. You could choose the the amount of choice you had in this program. That was one of many uh, assistants you could choose.
1: And this was completely independent of Clippy, wasn't it? Clippy was another...
0: Clippy was born out of Bob's failure, fun fact. So...
1: Oh, so Clippy was the the last bit of goodness they could find in bob
0: yep they uh, they uh <laughs> they cut their losses and uh what they could still salvage from it was <laughs> but uh not
1: far enough <laughs> another,
0: <laughs> another universally hated uh feature so speaking of things that make people angry, there's a weird zero day bug in Google Chrome that was kind of i don't know they, they, they didn't seem to be taking it too seriously is that is that what we're saying here
1: I don't really know how to take this Doug because yeah. we've, we've we've spoken a couple of times well last month we spoke about uh, chrome zero day in the midst of a whole load of other cvs that had got fixed and we were we were equally puzzled back then weren't we because it was hey there's this there's this zero day bug which means you know the crooks got there first we've patched it we've given it a rating of high where normally you think, well, the problem with a zero day, they they often get critical, particularly if they're remote code execution bugs, because it means that somebody already knows how to break into your browser if you haven't updated it. And the words this time were the same as they were before. Last time it was CVE-2022-0609. This one, if you want to go and hunt it down, is cve 2022 dash 1096. And all Google's really saying about it is Google is aware of reports that an exploit for this CVE exists in the wild, which is less definitive than saying, yeah, there's an exploit and we've seen it. Like, how do you know you've patched it if you don't know exactly what it is you're defending against or can't say? The day before the announcement of this we're aware of exploits existing in the wild story came out the day before Google's threat analysis group published their own dig into the previous update that was patched in this mysterious way and had quite a very interesting and well worth reading story about how they thought it had been used by not one but two different North Korean hacking groups for cyber crimes focusing on cryptocurrency investments in the one case and in bogus job offers in the other so my recommendation is don't delay do it today make sure you've got the latest version you should have it automatically but Mm -hmm. just in case you don't go and check
0: okay that is google chrome patches mysterious new zero day bug update now just like paul said on naked security Dot and as the sun slowly begins to set on our show for today, we have a reader question on the Deadbolt backup ransomware story we talked about earlier. Reader Tony King asks QNAP pushed out an update even to those devices with auto update turned off. That suggests there's some kind of backdoor in these products. How can a user be confident no bad actors can access that way? Which is a fair question.
1: It is. Most devices these days. Call home regularly whether you've got automatic updating turned on or not. A good example of why that might be necessary is what if the problem is in the automatic updating part? What if the bug is, oh no, sometimes it doesn't tell the person the update's available. So we'll be waiting forever for them to <laughs> click a, a button a good, that never appears. That's a you great know. point. So there's always going to be a place where you might think, you know what, there's such a clear and present danger rather than actually have everything locked out, will allow the, the software to update itself anyway. You could argue that in this case, it was more a question of them going the extra mile than them taking a needless risk that you would have rejected if they had asked.
0: All right. Very good. Thank you for the question, Tony. Thank you for the answer, Paul. And if you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles or hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay secure.